If you're looking for inspiration and challenge in the world of early years and Key Stage 1 education, then you've just found it. Welcome to the Early Excellence Podcast. Hello, everybody. I hope you're well. My name's Andy Burt. Welcome along to episode 74 of the Early Excellence Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Alison Heal and Anne-Marie Jones from Uskol Havod in Johnstown, Wrexham. As part of the discussion, we explore the inspirational journey of development at the school and consider the positive impact on the children, the staff, and also on the learning environment as well. Thank you very much for joining us, both of you. Are you both well? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Oh, it's a pleasure. It is a pleasure. How's, how's Wrexham today? Um, it, it's actually really sunny today. We've had some lovely weather and uh, really in, looking forward to sun the rest of the week, as per the forecast. Lovely. That's what we want to hear, isn't it? Definitely what we want to hear. Now, you've joined us, of course, because uh, we're going to talk a lot about the journey that you've been on as a school. You've been on a really exciting journey. Um, before we get on to that, are you all right to just talk us through a little bit of background? So if you could introduce yourselves, first of all, uh, and then tell us a little bit of background, if that's all right. Give us a bit of context. Is that OK? Over to you, Alison. Hi, um, I'm Alison. Um, I'm the head teacher at School of Harvard in Johnstown. Um, I've been here now for almost six years. Um, prior to that, I was head teacher of a federation, um, also in Wrexham of three schools. And prior to that, I was the foundation phase um, advisor for the local authority. So my background really is in um, early years um, pedagogy and practice. Um, so do you want to know a bit, little bit more about the school as well, or shall I pass on to Anne-Marie? Uh, if we pass on to Anne-Marie first, and then, we'll, we, and then you could give us a bit of context about the school afterwards, that would be great. Yeah, over to you, Anne-Marie. Hi, I'm Anne-Marie. Um, I am Foundation Phase Lead um, in a Scholar Havod, um, and I work in Year 1 and 2. Um, and that is, that is me, really. That, you know, that, that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> In a nutshell, brilliantly put. Now I like it. Sounds good. So your um, foundation phase lead and also work through to year two as well. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Fab. So tell us a bit about the school then. Uh, so um, a school I have at Johnstown is a school in one of the suburbs just outside Wrexham um, city centre. Sorry, it became a city this year. So I need to remember that. We've got 350 pupils on roll and about 23% free school meals um, and quite a mixed catchment. Now, up until 2015, we were actually two separate. We were a separate infant and junior school on a split site. So in September 2015, we amalgamated to become one school. Um, and we, we'd been on a split site up until now with a promise of um, a being on one site within five years. Um, and I think it's just about, well, by the time we actually get onto one site, um, I think it will be about eight years in total. But we're very excited that um, come September, we are moving into what will be a brand new um, refurb and extension um, for the school. So we're actually starting to build our learning environment from a blank canvas um, in readiness for September. And that's what's very exciting. Um, 
I've been here since November 2017. Um, and also, um, because we're in Wales, we have a brand new curriculum which started its rollout in September this year. So lots and lots of change for us as a school and as a nation in Wales. Um, and when I joined the school, I think staff were really ready for um, some change in terms of their practice and pedagogy. So that's just a little bit of background in terms of um you know, where we were and, and, you know, the beginning of our story, really. Yes. Yeah. So when you say that kind of the, the situation was right, really, for change, um, what do we mean by that in terms of, you know, had you had, did you identify quite early on an area for development? Was it a, something that you felt that actually needed to change? How did, how did that work? Well, I think um, when I started this in November 2017, obviously I came with my passion for kind of early years pedagogy, having been previously a foundation phase advisor. Um, and I think perhaps the school historically had a history of perhaps being quite formal um, in their approach. Um, and because we had sort of three parallel classes in each phase, so three nursery reception, three year one, two, three year three, four, three year five, six, I think there was very much a... a uh, in terms of that, the approach was that all classes needed to do exactly the same within within the phase, and I think the danger of that was that perhaps I can remember doing one of our first book book scrutinies when we first started that it was hard to see the individual child within each one because everyone was literally doing exactly the same in terms of the same learning intention, the same um, you know activity, and, and so on and so forth. And so staff were feeling really ready to do something differently. I think staff worked incredibly hard um, to build a you know a, a lovely school, but they just felt I think bogged down by the system. Um, so for example, um, they had lots of areas of provision in place, but they had a carousel system that was working. And I think the, the teacher was always with a focus activity, an adult directed task. Children were perhaps rotating through the areas, but staff were having to repeat that activity maybe three or four times to a day. By the fourth time, you kind of lost the will to live. And in the meantime, children perhaps using some of the areas of continuous provision, but staff were feeling demoralized I think because those areas would get perhaps trashed or the children weren't particularly interested in them and they really felt you know what can we do differently because we feel that the system at the moment isn't working for us. I think that we didn't as staff we didn't know what to do differently because we didn't know there was another option out there and I remember how hard we still work very hard now but I remember you're know, differentiating five ways um, as Alison said, delivering those lessons five or six times with the repetitive hamster wheel every day. And knowing that I didn't feel necessarily that we were being very innovative or very creative. We were very just driven by the plan um, and not really taking any interest of the children's of the, the children's passions um, or what drove them as people. It was all what we had on, that we were driving from the curriculum. Yes. Yeah, no, that's really interesting, isn't it? As well as that the it's not about the effort that you're putting in necessarily, is it? That actually you could work much harder potentially 
and get less back from it in terms of the children's learning or in terms of that drive for learning and motivation for learning. Um, it strikes me as well that it must have been very challenging, I think, to keep that motivation in terms of staffing. You know, that actually, you know, when you're repeating something over and over, actually, that's very difficult, isn't it? To keep that freshness, to keep that interest and excitement that, you, of course, we all want, don't we, for our, for our staff and for our children. And that, that poor last group, you'd always feel sorry for that poor last group. And nine times out of 10, it was always the group that needed your most attention, that you'd inevitably left to last um that you always felt really sorry for <laughs> yeah yeah definitely there's also i think we um I, I i think quite often we forget that children notice what's going on in the classroom before they get to an activity and and that can actually skew what happens in terms of activities you know so, so quite often you know when people talk about that kind of very traditional way of assessing children where they might sort of do a, almost like a test really of bringing, bringing one or two children over to a table and then doing a, a doing basically an assessment test and then whatever activity it might be and then they go off and then another child joint comes over by the time you get to the the last 10 children Actually, the, the kind of the word has gone around the class in terms of actually what it is that you do and how you do it. And you can see quite often in assessment data that actually children have got used to seeing what you're supposed to be doing and, uh, and, and they just do it. It's one of those funny things, isn't it? Yeah, we, we, and the messages as well that we felt that it gives the children about where the, where the learning happens and what's valuable, what's important. So if the teacher was always with the adult directed task, um, you know, that's where the learning was happening. That was what was important. So, um, we asked some quite key questions, I think, in, in preparing for change, um, which was probably a terrifying time, but a very exciting time as well. And I think, you know, we threw out a lot of curveball questions at the time, just trying to, to say, well, you know, what are you thinking about this? So, for example, you know, we asked the question about what the children could do independently. So if they were always with an adult when it came to doing a writing task, had the adult, if you like, become a bit of a crutch, could they actually do anything independently that wasn't sort of scaffolded in, in that sense? Um, we asked the question, is role play, for example, the only place children can play? So when they had these um, frames, you know, in the classroom, which was the, and the staff would create these amazing role play areas, but then get really disillusioned when the children would either not be interested in the area that had been set up or they just trashed it. Or they went in there and actually did something else that wasn't nothing to do with the role play area that had been set up. So, you know, we asked that question, is role play the only place children can play? No, it's a good, very good question. You get you end up with those sort of bizarre scenarios where somebody ends up saying, "That's not how you play in an airport. Leave the airport." You know <laughs> that kind of thing. Chances are, our, some of our children have never been to an airport. So, what on earth were we doing, creating yeah. these kind of scenarios where children have never even been to to be able to have that imaginative play? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. But it's so easy to fall into that. I think, isn't it? It's so, so easy to fall into that. So, so that I think that's really interesting. That idea of kind of sort of setting the scene really with with staff of, of kind of getting them to reflect on on what it is that they're doing and asking the questions of them is interesting, isn't it? Because actually, it's difficult, isn't it, to to just kind of enforce something on staff without them understanding well what it is that they why is it that we're doing that and so you're right i think that there does have to be that kind of laying the foundations 
and get, you know, nobody wants to just say, well, you're not doing that anymore. I'm not going to let you. It's that kind of more of a kind of moving forward together, I think, isn't it? That supporting staff to move forward and be reflective. Because as you said, Anne-Marie, earlier on, in a way, actually, we didn't know of a different way of doing it, really. And I think as we as this process was going on, I remember feeling, you know, I remember me, me thinking to myself, I wish Alison would just tell me what she wants. <laughs> Because that's how we've worked before. You know, that, that, that's how it was before. I was told how to work and that, that and then I worked how I was told. But Alison's way of working was that we had to find out for ourselves as a team what worked for the children. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that in some ways is a is a more challenging thing to put in place and um and probably takes more time as well but is much more likely to be successful over time, isn't it? Because the practice becomes more embedded because the staff then own it rather than it being them just doing something that, that somebody has told them to do. I think two of the, the questions that kind of provoked the most kind of reflection was um, we asked the question, you know, are adult directed focus tasks the only time children will learn? Because I think if you're feeling that the adult has always got to, you know, be taking control, that was another a curveball question and the other question was well how often do the adults the teachers and the teaching assistants spend time in the areas of continuous provision actually with the children um, supporting their play because historically if you're attached to that carousel treadmill I think which lots of schools because they think that that's the best way to do it is that you know you are always you've got to get your quota of adult directed tasks in and therefore if anything, the play in the areas of provision can become a bit of a time filler. Don't disturb me because I need to get this task done. And that's the message that the children get to about what learning is all about and where learning happens. So the question about what's the adult role in all of this was really, really important. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I would imagine as well that's very challenging for staff that that actually if you if you're very used to having a very clear objective and working, say, with a group at a group table, perhaps, and that you know the activity, you know what success looks like in terms of this activity, and I know how to get there with it, and I'm going to keep repeating that with all of the children, then in some ways that's quite straightforward. Whereas give the, give the adult that opportunity to go into those provision areas and say right well I want you to go and support that play that learning that happens within this area I want you to scaffold it I want you to model it I want you to support it and you won't know exactly where it's going to go that's actually very challenging isn't it if you're used to something that is is actually very controlled is that what you found I've as a as a team in foundation phase we found that very difficult some of us were able to just flow with it some of us have different areas of expertise i love being in the blocks whereas some of the members of staff you know they have talents elsewhere in the in the writing or in in the in the workshop um but having the finite task of a of a focus task is a lot easier to do than than have than than playing because we're programmed from very early that you know play is what children do not what grown-ups do um, yeah, absolutely. And, th and that's difficult, isn't it? Because I think also it feels sometimes that for earliest teachers who go through that process of, of looking at that broader practice, 
there are times when they feel that they're not teaching when they actually are. Does that make sense? I don't know whether that was a conversation that you had, that actually, you know, you are still teaching. It won't look the same as what teaching perhaps looked like previously, but actually you are still teaching. We had lots of conversations about how staff felt very self-conscious and the fact that they might think, oh, um, you know, I could be doing something else. Um um, or, you know, I could be hearing that group of children read books or, or whatever. Um, but and that actually it was very, very difficult initially to tune in and to understand, you know, what am I supposed to be doing here? I'm just standing here watching these children, you know, play in the blocks. What's my role? And, and we had a look. We had um, we spent a lot of time really trying to work at some guidance to support about what should adults do um, when they're in the areas of continuous provision. Yeah. Now, in fact, it's really, really interesting to listen to because I'm sure actually people who are listening to this will say, oh, yes, we, we've gone through a similar kind of process and, is, and or I've got members of staff who feel in, in exactly the same way that feeling quite self-conscious sometimes that actually they're not doing the job when actually, of course, they are doing the job. Yeah. And I think the way of doing it in terms of setting the scene with questions and kind of preparing the ground, I think, is really interesting. So, so what happened next then? So you went through a process of, of questions and reflection. What happened next in terms of moving that forward? Um, well, I think staff needed to understand because they had they'd worked really hard on an environment um, and, and setting it up. But we we asked the qu- the question, you know, what does an enabling learning environment look like? What and um, it's not just a case, if you like, of throwing resources together and putting them in an area. So. Um, I started at school in the November and in the January, um, the following January, we took the whole school, including Key Stage 2, to Early Excellence in Huddersfield. it's, well, it's about actually it's about an hour and a half. It's not as bad as you think, actually. Yeah, it doesn't take as long, you know, because we're, we're kind of on the edge uh, um, in terms of, of Wales in the border. So um, we, we took the school, the whole school to Early Excellence in Huddersfield and um, we had uh, Nova who took us around and gave us a, a conversation. I mean, I had a lot of previous um made lots of previous visits to early excellence in my previous roles. So I knew that if they came to Huddersfield, they would be really inspired. So um, we took the school en masse to early excellence, booked a really nice lunch because staff well-being in the process of change is massively important. Um, And so we went to early excellence and Nova gave us a tour about the principles of how the areas of provision were set up, that it wasn't just a case of putting resources neatly on a shelf, but how you know, what's the learning? What do we understand is the learning that could come from that in the laying out the resources that helps the children to make a plan and also in building progression into how they're set up so it looks different in early years than it does, for example, in year one and two. And we also gave um, staff a budget to spend in the um, resource centre as well because you can't ask staff to make a change unless you give them the resources and feeling that, you know, we've got some money to spend here. So if you want us to do this, you've got to put your money where your mouth is, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. And that shows that you're valuing it, doesn't it? That you're really thinking about it and and you're giving staff that ownership of the space as well. Um, Can you describe what the spaces, as in the classroom spaces, are like? You know, are they large classroom spaces? Are they smaller classroom spaces? Are they quite open plan? Just could you just give us an idea of kind of what the spaces are like? 
Um, well, at the moment, and of course, we're only here now for another few months, but this is where the journey has happened, if you like, and we'll be able to take all of this into our new build. So at the moment, we have a large, a very large early years um sort of one one base and then two other bases connected to that. And then in year one and two, we have three, if you like, classroom bases and a large shared collaborative space in the middle of that. So quite a lot to, to develop really in terms of space there, it sounds like. Okay. And so and so can you describe to us what how it looked, how different it looked following on from the work that you've done? You know, what was the change like visually? You know, what would you see if you walked in? Before, you would see um, things dangling from the ceiling. You'd have to go and pass your way through all these dangles from the, from, from the, from the ceiling. You'd have um, gary, bo- gary colours, every colour under the sun, um, displays that I would spend hours crafting. No child would touch them because I had to have them perfect. <laughs> uh, I would make children, I'd make children do work specifically for the board. <laughs> it, it is, it's laughable now because it just looks completely different. I'd have every gu- every colour of border, every colour of background paper, um, the... the um, your on your online web websites. I'd be downloading everything off there for me to laminate. I'd have my the the letter cut the letter cutouts, so every letter would look the same. There'd be no you know it, it, when I see go to other schools now that have that similar environment, it makes you feel quite busy and quite overwhelmed. Um, but now it looks completely different. Uh, so in the past, staff perhaps would put their year's supply of things out. So, you know, got to have lots of resources. So they would all there, quite a lot of plastic and maybe resources that could only be one thing. So, for example, the plastic garage or the plastic castle or, or something like that. Um, and great big tubs maybe of construction materials and things like that. Um, the blocks were in a big pile outside. Um, so... And again, staff worked really hard to create um, a learning environment that children would really enjoy, you know, being in. But staff would feel really disheartened, perhaps if areas got trashed and and so on and so forth. So what we did was obviously we kind of we neutralized the environment in that sense. We wanted the children and the resources to stand out and their work. So things like, you know, we we chose um, we got the blocks in from outside. And we scrubbed them all down and then we started to organize them. We what we actually did was we had um, a library, a big library shelf um, shelving unit in our collaborative area. And we took we, we rebuilt it around the corner. So we had the whole kind of one wall of library shelving and we turned that into a block area so that we could actually set out all our blocks in maybe um, piles of stacks of, say, four or five in arrays so that children could see exactly in front of them what was there and what they needed. Um, and then we labeled those things to support their learning in terms of their tidying up and their putting away so that even in the tidying up, children weren't missing an opportunity for learning. Um, so we, we chose a particular, um, we chose Lego as our main construction and we sorted it carefully into much smaller boxes so it could be set out on shelves and children could see what they wanted. Um, 
And that in itself is a, is a lot, isn't it? You know, that's a lot of work. And also, I think, quite a shift in terms of practice, you know, to go from, say, great big boxes of construction materials or um, things like a plastic garage or something like that to very open-ended block play that has been really carefully thought through and is even organized well so that when children are tidying up, they're sorting and classifying and using language in terms of shape and all of those sorts of things. That's quite a difference, isn't it? Because that that shows that you're thinking about the environment in terms of the learning that can go on within that environment, not necessarily with an adult there. You know, that, that that's not just about, as you said before, almost like the environment being used as a holding activity in between the teaching times. This is a different, def, a different thing altogether, isn't it? This is a complete shift towards something that is about the learning quality that can happen within that environment. Yeah. And I think that in terms of the planning of the environment, so often I think staff think they make their list of resources, perhaps without really understanding what it is they want the children to do or what skills they want them to develop in an area. And actually, the last thing they may think about is how are they going to be organised when they're in an area Um, and understanding the learning that can come from, from that too. And so in planning areas... Um, going forward, we spend a lot of time now thinking about, well, what skills do we want the children to learn in that area? What resources will allow those skills to develop? But the most important thing is how will we organise those resources so children can see exactly what they need and that, that will help them to plan, but also how is their progression? So it doesn't look the same necessarily in early years as it does in year one and two, because we want the children's thinking to be more sophisticated. We want their skills to, to really develop and progress as well. So that process of planning the area is really fundamental, I think, in in developing yeah. that enabling environment. It takes time as well, doesn't it, yeah. Nothing is put in that area just... Um, ad hoc everything is there to to um, address progressions skills mastery of skills um there's, no, there's nothing just plopped there for no reason uh, and i think as well yeah the, so it means the adults know the resources then doesn't don't you know they know what's there and they know the purpose of it and the reason for it meaning that when children are using it actually then the adults know the key skills that they can then be supporting the children with when using that resource so it all links together doesn't it the time spent on the environment isn't wasted time because it also impacts on the role of the adult effectively as well doesn't it i think the other thing that's really important is that the areas need to be fluid they need to to work together and, and I think historically you know when you sent a child a group of children into an area you would say now you stay there and don't you come out until I tell you to and you stay in that particular area or you see a child maybe moving something and you say where are you going with that that belongs in that area take it back with their area badge on. with their area badge yeah. on. so <laughs> and actually what you need to understand is if you're there as an adult and you can see how it's working if a child is in block play and suddenly needs to make something to support that block play that they know they've got the freedom to go to the workshop to make what it is that enhancement that they need bring it back to move the play on that can only happen because the adult is there and can see what it is that's developing and the children need to know that the the environment is fluid and that you can move between areas to support play in one area by getting something from another one and, and that's where the adult role is so fundamental, because if you're not there, how do you know 
how do you know that's what they need to do? And so often you you can kill the player by saying, excuse me, take that back. Or you've been in there, you're not going back there today kind of thing. Uh, And that's really important. Yes, definitely, definitely. The um, the other thing I wondered about you mentioned about that idea of of going then into year one and then into year two in terms of developing the environment, and I wondered about chronologically when did this happen? Did you did you do it all together, you know, almost as a whole team, or did you say right, well, we start from the EYFS and let's develop the environment and the practice there, perhaps in one year. And then when those children come to move on, did you then say, well, in that for these children, these children are used to working in this way, therefore year one needs to be different. How did, what did it look like? So we, we did do it together because I think we've been in the more fortunate position in Wales is that we had foundation phase, which was three to seven. So they, we were fortunate in that already the principles in terms of pedagogy and foundation phase was about children learning through play right up until they're seven. And I think we've been very fortunate in Wales for that. So staff had already, you know, got areas of provision. It was just that frustration about feeling that what the children were doing was was not very productive or the play wasn't moving on from what was happening in early years into year one and two. So we went for it really in foundation phase across the board, but actually doing it together helped us to see where's the progression in this? How is it more sophisticated? How is it different in year one and two? Because we were developing it in early years at the same time. The onus was on year one and two as well, I think, because we knew we had to had to push it forward, had to push yeah. that learning forward for them. It had to look different than than um, than nursery and reception. It had to look a little bit more grown up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And can you give us an example of how that looked different? In what way? Because I'm sure people will be listening and thinking, well, you know, what was that? What does that look like then? Well, um, a good ex- yeah, a good example might be in in. Um Play-Doh, let's say, if you've got an area for for Play-Doh. So in early years, it's linked very closely to the role play area and it's situated quite closely to the role play area because we know in, in early years, children are very much about developing their fine motor skills, but often Play-Doh is linked to making cakes and um, sausages and, and whatever. So they've got resources there that will allow them, you know, the baking trays and the um, fairy cake tins and rolling pins and all of that that supports their that kind of predictable interest and that developmental stage in terms of Play-Doh in early years. They've also got some loose parts, for example, like matchsticks and googly eyes and and other things that are part of that role play. Um, But it's very much that kind of fine motor skill development linked to role play in early years. But in in, um, year one and two, so often, you know, we'd see that 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 was it was exactly the same that had been on offer in year one and two but we've looked at developing it in year one and two because we're looking at kind of moving on from play-doh that supports that role play into that kind of 3d um, malleable form um, art form if you like so we might still have play-doh but the resources will be, will be more sophisticated um, but also we would have things like um, maybe sometimes clay sometimes the you know the um moldable silver foil that was a great um, find from early excellence in terms of you know, sculpting so it was much more about the sculpting and the art form and building 3d um art form really 
then it one moving on from role play. So we might have more sophisticated um, resources for sculpting and molding and cutting and shaping the Play-Doh or the clay or whatever, maybe some nuts and bolts and screws and feathers, or all sorts of different loose parts really that would support the development of kind of the 3D form it, and and that in that sense, um, I think I Marie found an old set of weights and scales by looking in a, in a charity shop. So children could naturally. We've had a pasta machine in there. I think yeah, now. pasta machine, grater, um, flow, cloud dough. Loads of different options and 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 things that that can be available for them. And what we find again, developmentally, children might still be at the stage when they make cakes and so on and so forth but actually the resources themselves are more sophisticated and allow the children to move them forward and then of course the adult role in kind of helping them build that um kind of more sophisticated play is is really important but so that's quite a good example i think of how yeah no it's a very good example no i really like that idea i i think the idea of moving it forward from it being um about sort of imaginative play linked to making cakes or birthday cakes and things like that to it being an art form and also thinking about actually how it could become the base for a 3d sculpture or structure you know that kind of idea of you know i've seen it seen lots of great work actually with clay and with dough where actually it's what you place into it that becomes very interesting for children you know that you might add wire into it for example you, you know you might use that as the basis for your structure uh, and to look at other artists and in really interesting artists that use the same sorts of materials as you're providing for your children. So, yeah, really interesting stuff that I think. Um, it made me think, just as you were talking, that, of course, it changes the role of the adult. And we've talked a bit about that. But it also changes the way in which adults get to know the children, I think. And I... I wondered whether actually you could talk a little bit about that or whether you'd seen that, that actually adults suddenly find that actually they can, they find that they know the children who are expert, expert builders, or they suddenly know the children who are really creative or that they, they know the children who have seen somebody at home who does something, I don't know, with a particular artwork or whatever it might be. And you get to know the children in a different way. Had you, did you find that as part of the practice? Yeah, definitely. During um, during our hour, because Alison hasn't explained it yet, I don't think, but having the hour every day to come together in what we call over to you time, where we all come en masse into the into the um, continuous provision area. Um, teachers, teaching assistants to the children. There's 90 of us and and and, and 10 adults that, that are in the areas. Um, you will find that one master builder every year. And that master builder is gold dust to your planning um, and the provision because they see things that they, they, you didn't know that they could create before and they just it's a it's a pebble in the in the it's a pebble in the in the pond because the ripple effect from that one master builder just sets off everyone and it's brilliant to see it happen and when it, whenever you whenever it because it does happen every year you're like, yes because this person this particular girl she had a passion for um dinosaurs and so she came to me first week and it was a, bro, a brachiosaurus that she had built and it was about five foot tall with the big blocks um, and I said, oh, well, I'll go and make some teeth. I, I went back and, and made sharp teeth. No, Mrs. Jones, Brachiosaurus is a carnivore. It has flat teeth. So so she's teaching me as well. And that, and that reciprocal, reciprocal, reciprocal teaching yeah. 
it's just invaluable. You know, I'm learning things from her. She's learning things from me. The other children who don't know how to block play necessarily are just watching and all thinking, oh, you know, I can get I can get amongst this as well. I can do these kind of things. I'll be a fetcher. I'll be a carrier. I'll be a labeler. I'll get the measuring stick out. All of these things that, that you know, this this journey that we're all going on. And, you know, that happens about, you know, that spark happens Nearly on uh, nearly daily for us. It's brilliant. Well, I think that that kind of the, the, the range of roles because the adult is there and can see. You understand that maybe that child who is standing on the edge watching isn't because they're not interested. Is actually they're making sense of what's happening here and what's my role in this. Or they're listening in and they're saying, "I'll get that. I'll get that." So they're fetching and carrying is actually really supporting the intensity of the play that's going on. What it's actually done for us is that actually planning is turned on its head then. So we can plan very carefully for the skills that the children will need as they go throughout the year. We know where they need to be. But actually, the context now has to be driven by the children. And so, um, you know, those kind of topics that you plan ahead for become much more difficult to do because you're being led by the the interests of the children because you're talking to them a lot more because they're in the areas. You're thinking, actually, this is a real developing interest here. This is something we really need to go with. But actually, the skills we need to develop can be developed through this context. But because the children have chosen it, the engagement in learning is much better. You know, they've got something they want to write about because they've set the context um, you know, and, and we see that um, just this, just this week um, locally, we had Bangor races. We've got a horse racing track and some of the children have been to a family day. And yesterday, Bangor racetrack has appeared in block play. And, and you know, you can see that there. We're developing. It'll give them something that they want to. to and that's the thing, isn't it? When children are, are interested by something, when, they're in, when their lives are impacted by something, uh, whatever it might be, that actually that will come through in their interest, won't it? It will come through in how they respond to your environment, whether that be in the block area or in the construction area or in what they're painting or talking about. And you can't get away from that, can you? You've, you've, that is such a powerful motivator. You have to embrace, you have to embrace it. Last week, I think it was two weeks ago, we the Rec, Wrexham Football Club won, won promotion and I you think, may have heard about that. I think every single person, I think every person was at the parade, and so the block area was filled. They made the they'd made the football ground, they'd made the the parade, they'd made the double decker buses, they'd made Rob and Ryan, um, they'd made stop animation. All of this happened in this one hour of Monday, and it carried on all through the week. There was no putting it away at the end of the session. We, we continue to build, add on speech bubbles for the ticket man in, in, in the Rexel race course. They were tiny, you know, tiny notes, tiny money notes that they, were, that they had created. Every single skill, I think, that week was taught through the block play. But then we pulled it back into focus teaching. We had some fantastic um, newspaper reports yeah. And because they'd lived through it. When the children have lived and breathed and, and sort of rolled in it, really, immersed them in that experience, they've got something to write about then. So the news reports that we had as a result of that, because the children have lived and breathed it and recreated it, your, your, your standard of writing then is much better because these children have spent that time in that area. And that's one of the biggest worries, I think, isn't it? Well, how have I, if I've got to make time for play, when am I going to get this writing done? Yes. 
when actually, of course, making that time for play gives you the context to which you can really get to know what fires up those children in terms of learning and to build those relationships for learning so that you're in a far better position to do that planning. Um, yeah, I think it's really interesting. The, um, I was going to ask you in terms of, I know people will be really interested to know, what does the planning process look like? Um, so it kind of, you've talked about kind of how you bend towards what those interests are so that you're using them, so that you're using those, those really, um, those really fantastic moments, those, 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 those moments that are, that are, that where the children's interests are absolutely captured. What does that look like in practice? Do, does it mean that as a team you meet together to discuss what you're observing or what you've observed? You, I think you mentioned a little bit earlier on that kind of idea of work of, of being together as a group. What does it look like? The first thing that's really important is that base layer of planning for continuous provision that we've mentioned. So you have to have, you have to understand what learning is going to come from your areas of provision. So that planning is really important. And then that retro, you need to understand in terms of planning ahead for the skills that you know exactly what skills these children need to develop um, within their phase or whatever. But then you've got that retrospective, what's just happened here and how we're going to take it forward. And Anne-Marie's probably better placed to explain on a week-by-week -week basis how that works. Um, yeah, well, normally... We'll have an over, there, there will be your, your common interests and your, and your regular things that pop up, um, that, that, that pop up every year. Um, like you know, predictable interests. So we'll look yeah. at the school year, for example, and think, well, what's happening this term? So, you know, obviously you've got the new start in September. We'll have our harvest and bonfire night, those predictable interests and needs. And we'll also look ahead at what what's coming. You know, for example, Wrexham Football Club has been a massive predictable interest in our community recently but you might also look at what are the big films that are coming out what are the big issues out there at the moment um like you know climate change or whatever we know that these things are going to be predictable interest so that you can plan around that yeah um but then also that time that you spend as adults within what we call over to you time that's where the developing in interests and themes will emerge so in your weekly planning, you'll think, what's happening here? What are we seeing? What are we observing? How can we apply that context now into the skills that we need to take forward and develop? So last term, we taught um, space was the topic, um, but it was the topic that the children brought to the table. They were really interested in it. I think there were a couple of, of space rockets going up last term. And um so we asked the big questions to them. What do they want to know about space? What do they know about it already? What would they like to learn? So we asked, they came to us with lots of questions and we fitted those questions into the skills framework, the, um, the Welsh framework that we've got so that we could ensure the coverage of the skills, um, possible activities that we could teach with them during the focus, during the focus time um, and then went, went with it from that document. Um, but that's you know that's not to say that a spanner doesn't get put in the works when Wrexham get promoted. So, but you are flipping from space to Wrexham, uh, you know, and you know, something else could crop up as well. But it's having that flexibility to know, uh, you know, that, that you you can flip in from from one to the other, and it's still okay to do that. You've got that freedom, you've got that flexibility, um, and you're not hemmed in by a curriculum that doesn't suit your creativity as a teacher or the children's creativity. Yeah, I, what I really like about listening to what you're saying is that your your passion for it comes across. 
you're not just talking about coverage and kind of going through the motions of doing it. You're really fired up yourself by actually the excitement of of not always knowing exactly where everything is going, that that not just knowing exactly that what by, why, by week six we will be doing whatever it might be, but that actually we might start off with this and let's see what develops from it. And that being on the edge of your seat a little bit as a teacher is actually often where the magic happens, I think. You know, that actually we don't always know what, what's going to come next. And that keeps us on the edge of our seat and it keeps us interested and engaged with what's happening, doesn't it, I think? And they can hear that in your voice. I, I think we, and it is definitely a reciprocal journey and you have to be prepared for that because we are learning alongside the children mm-hmm. and there's a joy in that. And, you know, it, it is, um, you know, we and if anything, it, it's... Letting go of that control of always knowing what's going to happen is actually more terrifying and harder to plan for. But, um, you know, in that sense, you know, it it does make the experience, I think, more engaging both for the adults and the children. And the retrospective look back is really important because you have to think, well, what's happened? Let's have a look at our curriculum and the skills that we need to cover and the context. And where are the gaps? Because then you can go back to the children and say, well, look, we've got to do this. You know, how could we do it? So we do certainly have non-negotiables and things that we have to do. But I think if you have a curriculum and an environment where children know you respect their ideas and their values, they're very willing to listen to say, actually, this is a non-negotiable here and we need to do this because they know you value what they bring. And that's so important. I I wouldn't want people to come away from this and think, oh, all they do is play and there's nothing else that goes on. Yes, there's, you know, there's phonics and there's the maths that we, you know, and all of those, you know, those are the the rigorous things that we do every day. Um, But imagine being, you know, I'd look back to where we were pulling those same six topics off the, off the, off the, um, off the cupboard every term. And you, I just feel that, we're just so much more imaginative and creative and it's exciting. I think, that, you know, the, the, the organisation of the day, really, when we talked about kind of that treadmill of the carousel, you know, we have a lot of rigour in our teaching, for example, of our reading and our phonics and our uh, maths and numeracy and so on and so forth. But we have them um, when when we're doing adult directed tasks, the whole class are doing them together. So the children know this is an adult directed time. We may be working in groups. We may be working independently. But the adult is saying, I'm leading the learning here. This is what's happening. But then we have what we call over to you time when that time of day and it's an hour at the moment every morning, we hand the learning environment over to the children and we say, this is your chance to show us what you know, to take and use and apply those skills we've been learning in our adult directed time, to use them and apply them in all these different areas. And our role as adults is changing then saying, we're here now to support you, to facilitate what it is you want to do, to see what skills you're using and applying, and to help us understand the context of where we need to take the learning next. So we have our our very distinct adult-directed times of the day, but we also have time when we really hand the learning environment over to the children and say, this is why we call it over to you time. You know, this is where you can show us what you're learning. We're here to support you. But the other thing that's so important is that is that we have to hold them to account for that, too. They need to know that over to you time isn't just a free for all. And that at the end of over to you time, we'll be holding to account them to account. Say, 
What have you been learning today? What was tricky? How have you done that? You know, how did you overcome that problem? What skills have you been using? So that in itself is holding to the, holding them to account so they can see you think this matters to us. Yes. No, I think that's really interesting. What you're saying is that because sometimes what happens is when, when we talk about actually kind of opening up the, the environment or, you know, giving the children that scope to go off and explore and to use – I think sometimes people assume that well that what that is or what that will lead to is a kind of a lowering of expectations that actually you know there's less that will happen you know that won't be as productive perhaps we won't get through as much we won't cover as much and so on whereas actually you're talking about the opposite you're talking about raising expectations really and and that is key isn't it that it's a it is about that when those children do go into those provision areas your expectations for them in terms of what they're doing and then talking to them afterwards or during about the learning and about the quality of learning, that's key to it as well. There's a different relationship there, I think, isn't there? Yes, and I think as well, so when you're setting up your environment, for example, if you're going to, if you want really high quality block play, um, which is one of our greatest passions, is don't put the blocks in an area that you have to then tidy up for the children to sit down and gather afterwards. You need to create a space where when they're building something in blocks, they can go back to it again and again and again. They can refine it. They can tweak it. You know, they can add to it. They can change it. But if that can't stay up for a few days, children learn to have low expectations because they think, well, there's no point building anything because you're going to make it tidy up to sit down for a phonics session in five minutes time and so on and so forth. And, and that, that fluidity of the environment is that children need to know that it's okay if I did it today i can go back to tomorrow so it's not having those restrictions about saying no no you can't go in what you were there yesterday because for that child who's building on something that happened yesterday they need to know that they've got that that opportunity to go back again and again and that's where the adult is so important because you get to know those children perhaps who never do anything else and only go to one particular area so you can be there to support them perhaps to to venture out and, and try something different yes yeah it's higher expectations but also it's a respect isn't it a respect for what the children will do and what what they what their ideas are that i think comes across well yeah no i think that's really interesting um Presumably, you know, we talked about, you know, getting, you've got to know the children far better through doing it. Um, I wondered about the impact on the children. You know, what is it that you're, are you seeing different things in your children when you observe them, when you engage with them? When you think back to kind of the practice before, are you seeing a different sort of learning experience for the children and that you see you see, and you get to know the children in a different way? What, what are you seeing in terms of the impact? Um, I feel that they, that it's a different school. It's a, it's a, I feel that it is. It, it could be a complete. It is a, a completely different school. I think the well-being of the children. What you know, the 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 crazy interest that they had that I didn't even know they had this week. One year, one boy came to me with um, a, a three-foot Bismarck that he'd made from craft paper. You know, and I would never have had time to 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 even know what that was, or to myself that he had the ability, or you know, or um, or passion for um. For warships, <laughs> um, so so I think that it just lets us hear their voice, and 
if you can't hear their voice, what are they? What are they here for? Isn't it? You know, just to get on that. Uh, you know, again on that hamster wheel until they get to the end of school. You know, I don't think that that's what school should be about. Um, and I know that our children in this school love coming to school. And if for for whatever reason they can't go to over to Uplime, I, I would be surprised if they didn't call their unions <laughs> because because there's uproar. You know, there, there is absolute uproar if, if for whatever, you know, it very rarely happens. But for, for whatever reason, over to you time is cancelled. We have to pay it back. So <laughs> I think at the heart of our the, the Welsh curriculum, we've got four purposes. Um, and we're, we're developing children to become ambitious, capable learners, creative contributors, ethically informed citizens and healthy, confident individuals. And by creating an enabling environment is allowing our children to develop all of those things because we see that they're ambitious and that they're capable. We see that they're healthy and confident. Their creativity and innovation, I think, is a joy to see, um, you know, when they interact, if you like, with their learning environment. Um, and that manifests itself, you know, in the work that they produce, but also in the creativity about um, you know, we've got three parallel classes, for example, in year one and two. And whilst we talk a lot about consistency, but not cloning of each other. So you can, if you look at the books, for example, from each of the classes, you'll see great consistency. But they're different necessarily sometimes in the way that they're set out, because that's the, those are those children and their individuals. And this is another class of children and, and those individuals. So it's very much about consistency and pedagogy and practice, but not cloning of each other. That's really important. Yeah, no, that's a really important distinction, isn't it? That it isn't just we're not just talking about ending up with exactly the same thing, but actually the ethos behind it is the same. Yeah. I don't think you should ever end up with the same thing because everyone is different, isn't yeah. it? Previously, every page had to look the same in every class. And now when you reflect on that, it shouldn't have because every child is different. Every teacher delivers it different. Um, Shoehorning, I think, what, what it was previously. Yeah. And and so you feel that you've got to really got to know the children in a different way. Presumably you you have seen them in terms of how they've developed as learners. So not just in terms of what they have learned, as in curriculum content, but in terms of actually as a learner. So, you know, have you seen a difference in terms of, say, engagement or problem solving or, you know, all of those sorts of things? Do you feel that that's come across more? Yeah, def definitely. And I think um, children, we, what we've discovered is that children have better ideas than we could ever plan for. <laughs> um, you know, they, they are they are innovative. They are they're great at solving problems, um, and their perseverance and resilience. I think their empathy for each other, because that you know, self and peer assessment are such an important skill, particularly as they go through the school. And in the context of their play, we can really eke out that you know what did so and so do well, and what would they what could they do to do it better. So those we're laying down those foundations really of that self and peer assessment that's success criteria that they are going to need later on because we're, we're you know in terms of interacting with their environment they're developing those skills and certainly their perseverance and resilience um post-covid in particular i think you know for some children who have a poor perception of themselves as learners having an adult support them in their play to create that thing that they've been desperate to do does a lot for their own self-esteem and their well-being and their own resilience and perseverance. 
Yes. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's really powerful. And presumably as well, an, a real impact in terms of staff. Do you, you, know, you talked earlier on about staff really kind of be it finding that quite difficult, I would imagine, in terms of that move from something that was quite structured and where they knew kind of exactly where they stood with everything that was there to then moving beyond that. That's quite a challenge. But presumably along that journey, we've seen a real difference in the staff. Yeah, I think so. The staff well-being is I, I, it's really high in school. Um, and the way that we work means that personally, I I get Sundays with my family. Yeah, and I think that, you know, for some teachers, they don't have that luxury. And I just like them to know that there is a different way where you can spend Sundays with your kids um, before they grow up and they don't want to know you. <laughs> <laughs> but um and you know every day is a different day it really you you know if i could write i should do it really you know write it you know write a diary of what what different things we do every day because not one day is the same um not one day is just pulled off a shelf everything it's in you know every step here it's innovative i i think it's important to, to note you know it isn't all being a bed of roses no. and that you know there are some staff who um, you know, sometimes it's just in their bones and they understand it. But there are other staff you really have to bring along with you on that journey and some staff who can be quite resistant to that. Um, and I think, like, at the beginning, it's about helping them to understand this is why we're doing what we're doing and giving them a voice to voice, perhaps if they're struggling with something or if something that, you know, helping them to discuss it through, well, I see it this way. Let's have a look at how you're feeling about that. How can we work through it and so on and so forth? Because it isn't all necessarily a bed of roses. And I think, you know, you will often get staff who can be quite resistant and find that process very, very um, terrifying, if you like. So it's working, work doing that, going on that journey together and working alongside and talking those things through is actually really important in this process because there will be days when staff come to you and say, this isn't working, I don't want to do this. And I think when someone comes to you and says, this isn't working, that's a sure sign that you have to keep going. Um, particularly, I think, at the beginning of the year. September, isn't it? When you've got a new set of children and the temptation is to cover an area with a cloth and say, don't go there. I say, don't cover it with a cloth because you have to weather the storm. Um, if you really want children to, you know, to develop those skills, you have to go through the pain barrier. And it is painful some days. And we had that conversation at the beginning is that there are times when it's going to feel chaotic. There's times when you're going to feel like you don't know what you're doing. Or there's no sense of direction, but you just have to keep on going because for our children and for adults, if you keep on changing things, they don't know where they stand. They don't know what the environment's all about. And you have to, the whole point about continuous provision is that it's continual and it's going to be there. And I think staff have to work through that as well as the children. So that pro the process that we think hasn't been an easy one. And I think if staff feel that their voice will be heard in that process and that you will support them alongside um, and that they also, you know, they can have bad days and that's okay, that you're more likely then to get the practice and the pedagogy that you want at the end of it because they're with it and they're working through it with you that's really important yes 
Yeah. No, it's it's fascinating stuff. It's really interesting to listen to the journey. Um, we, we just need to sort of um, come towards the end of what we're saying here. I'm, I'm aware of your time as much as anything. I'm really, really grateful for your, for your time. Um, just, um, just one final question. I know you're heading on to a new school building. You mentioned it earlier on uh, when we were talking earlier. Um, tell us about what's next for you in terms of the practice or in terms of this move you know what does that look like just finally I think maybe five years ago had we been moving on to a brand new site it would have been a very different experience but having had this kind of five six years to really think and work on our learning environment we we feel much more highly skilled I think in developing a, a new environment from a blank canvas and so we are building on what we know from our early years and year one and two practice. And we're looking at progression right the way through to year six that our enabling environment, whilst it may look very different in year five and six, will be an enabling environment. And one of the things we're really, um, well, we are planning to do is to develop block play right through from early years right through to year six. Um, so in terms of certain areas of provision, so for example, block area for um, art studio workshop, we looked at the process from what does it look like in early years, but what does it also look like in year six? Because if these children are going to build progressively on their skills and they're leaving foundation phase equipped with all these things, we need to make sure that that journey continues it has to look different. It has to be more sophisticated in year six. But nevertheless, those provision areas will be there. And I think that's the next step of our journey is how do we make sure that that enabling environment that we've worked so hard and that the um, advocacy, if you like, of the children's voice continues right the way into year six. Um, we're quite excited that in our new building, we have what we call a I don't know if I'd like to call it a training room, but we have a room that we'll be able to hopefully um, allow practitioners to come and visit, but also have a space then to reflect and to work with us in how they take their own learning environment. It's fascinating. I, th I think that idea of progression and progression of block play particularly, I think will be really interesting. Um, what I think is great is that you're not just talking about a top-down model. So you're not just saying, well, actually, this is where we want to get children by year six and therefore year five needs to look like this to prepare them for year six and year four needs to look like this to prepare them for year five. And that it all comes down to actually, you know, where do early years children need to be? Be to be in year one and, and so on but actually you're starting the other way around aren't you you're saying actually our early years children uh, and in year one and year two have all of these skills have all of these interests all of these passions they've learnt all kinds of different ways of exploring the world around them and and uh, responding to all sorts of different things you're kind of saying it's our responsibility to keep that going and that's a different kind of way of looking at it, isn't it? I think a really powerful way. Of I mean, I think we, 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 the understanding is, is that if we equip our children in the right with the right skills, they're more likely to be successful when they go into secondary school and whatever, because, you know, we, we've equipped them as learners, you know, right from the start. Um, yeah, what a powerful, powerful thing to say. Yeah, I think that's that's fantastic. Um, Alison and uh, Anne-Marie, thank you so much for joining us uh, today for the podcast. It's been 
fascinating to listen to you both. You know, the journey is just incredible, I think. You know, the, the difference between what you've described earlier on and where you kind of got to already and kind of also where you're going with it is, is yeah, it's so fascinating and and um, and really powerful, I think, to, 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 to join you on that and to, and to, to listen to what you're saying here. Um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Um, all the very best with everything. I'm sure it, it would be great to catch up with you in, at some point in the future and find out how that journey through to year six with block players gone because that's a, it's a yeah it sounds wonderful that's the terrifying thing at the moment because we don't know and and that's always i think when you venture into something new um i i think somebody once said to me if you don't know where you're going you're probably growing and i'm thinking that's what we're going for right now because we don't quite know how it will end up but you know we're excited about the journey no it's powerful <laughs> stuff thank you so much thank you So there you go. Inspirational stuff, I think. And um, thank you very much to Alison and also to Anne-Marie for joining us on the podcast this week. And um, certainly lots there that I think will really get people thinking, really getting people, uh, that will really get people um, considering their provision and their practice as well. Um, for those of you people listening along, I hope that you found our discussions useful. Um, as usual, if you've got any questions or any queries and you'd like to get in touch, uh, my email address is just andy at earlyexcellence.com and it would be great to hear from you. Do feel free to get in touch. Um, that's about it for this week, everybody. Thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time. <laughs>